KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. A lot of attention on the House Select Committee, which is investigating the insurrection of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Now, the committee held its first hearing this week, and we wanted to dig in and talk about what we should expect and what we could learn from the work of the committee over the next several weeks and months. For this conversation, we caught up with Dr. Joshua Weikert. He is an associate professor of politics at Immaculata University, also chair of the Department of Civic Engagement. Really interesting stuff. Give a listen. So when we look at this committee looking into January 6th, should we be expecting something similar to the 9-11 commission we saw, or would it be more similar to the Watergate hearings, or is this kind of its own thing that we really don't have a comparison for? I mean, we have examples of, of what it would sort of be like. I, I mean, I hate to even invoke the comparison, but it's a little more like sort of what we saw with the House on american Activities Committee, or it's a particular question being pursued by a select committee of the House. And, you know, while it doesn't carry the sort of like, you know, problems of, of legitimacy that that investigation did, it, it is more similar to that in that it's sort of an ongoing fact-finding mission that doesn't have an explicit, you know, chartered purpose at the outset. Whereas like the 9-11 Commission was tasked very particularly with investigate for this many months, uh, produce a report within this time frame. And the original proposal for the January 6th commission that was uh, shot down in the Senate, and which although Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy's deputy on the House, uh, the House Homeland Security Committee who negotiated the, the agreement, and then McCarthy ended up sort of lobbying against it, like that commission would have been much more like that 9-11 commission. This is a little more, um, you know, particular to, uh, to, to, first of all, to the House members specifically, because the the shot down commission would have included outside experts nominated by members of the house. Uh, it would have been much more independent. This is again, more of a, an internal uh, deliberation of the house uh, along the lines of any other select committee. So what do you think we could learn? How deep do you expect this to go? Do you expect a lot of uncomfortable truths to come to the forefront? I do. And one of the surprising things is that normally when this happens, I mean, for, for all the good that it does, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives is not very good at sort of putting on a show. Like they don't have a sense of sort of like, you know, building tension and drama and storytelling, mostly because you have, you know, on any given committee, you have like 15 directors and stars of the show as they see it. But what we have here is that it, almost every time they hold even a hearing on this subject of January 6th, more information comes to light. New video is released. New audio is released. The testimony from the first day was incredibly compelling with the, the officers of the Capitol Police. And every single time we sort of scratch the surface here at one of these hearings, whether it's part of this commission or, or prior to it, we do get something new. And it's it's all shocking. I mean, if I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels this way, but if you had, if I had just woken up from a coma and ran across these hearings on television, I would assume I was watching some kind of like staged docudrama. Because this is not the kind of thing we would expect in the United States of America. And so the fact that, you know, every day has the potential to have more and more of this self-reflection of like, not only did this happen, but how did we let this happen? And what does it say about our politics right now and going forward? I think it can't help but be much more compelling than the average, uh, you know, congressional hearing. You mentioned the first hearings on Tuesday, uh, July 27th. Um Four Capitol Police officers who were holding the line on on January 6th, to your point, incredibly compelling, raw, didn't hold anything back. 
as this being the opening salvo, does this change any kind of calculus? Because I'm sure a lot of people would love to dismiss this as theater, but hearing that in the the cops' own words, does that up the ante? You think? I, I think it absolutely does. I, th- I think from the outset, this has been a hard thing to oppose politically. The the fact that you have so many Republicans vocally opposed to it. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it surprising, but I, I do stop and wonder, like, what do they really think a win looks like here? Because this is unquestionably a matter of great national importance. Um, it it calls into question, you know, uh, you know, vital elements of of like American democracy and American politics and American political culture. And you know, there was a violent armed attack on the Congress as it was trying to complete a constitutional function. And we, the things we already know that happened on January 6th, the people chanting about hanging Mike Pence. I mean, like it, there's nothing to hold on to and make, make the argument that maybe this was just like a, a good natured protest that sort of got out of hand. And every time a, a politician tries to make that argument, they meet, I think, justifiably some real just sort of befuddled shock in the, in the general public, maybe not in, in the most committed members of their constituencies, but it, just in, in general, the average person walking around the street could not possibly rationalize or justify this. And so trying to defend it is challenging enough, but it's even more challenging because it brings to bear a lot of really powerful cross pressures for conservative members of Congress who are typically all about law and order, who are in support of, who are supportive of police, who are, you know, who are, you know, professed, you know, you know, outspoken patriots as they see it. So it puts them in constant awkward positions in trying to avoid what are really essential questions. And they are definitely trying to avoid those questions. Um, just on Tuesday, Republican conference chair, Lee Stefanik from New York, who replaced Liz Cheney as conference chair, issued a statement that what you're not going to hear at these hearings is how this is all really the fault of Nancy Pelosi because she didn't approve budgets for increasing, you know, security at the Capitol. And like, it's not that those aren't valid questions. I, like, I really think they are. I think there's a perfectly reasonable, good faith discussion to be had about whether the U.S. Capitol was reasonably secure or not and what we should do to going forward. But to argue that that is what we really need to be focusing on sounds, I think, to the average person kind of ridiculous. I think what we've seen in you know, these hearings were going on, and you mentioned Elise Stefanik. There was a press conference held with some Republican members of the House, obviously trying to, you know, draw people away, draw people's attention away. As this continues, and it gets more and more uncomfortable for, frankly, a lot of Republican politicians, do you think we will see more and more raise the uh you know raising the stakes on antics to get people's attention away from it do you think we will see some republicans who have been you know very much in the pro donald trump camp break away i don't quite know how this is going to play out as the stuff comes out and is more dramatic and more revealing and more damning in some cases i mean on one level right like the Republican establishment, you know, under Donald Trump, not the conventional old fashioned Republican establishment, but like sort of the the Trump, you know, stanchion of the party has been relying for a long time and modestly successfully on the sort of closed loop that a lot of their constituents live in, that they get most of their news and opinion uh, coverage from sources that repeat their priors and their pre-existing beliefs. So there's a degree of insulation when you know that, you know, in your gerrymandered house district that 80% of the voters get almost everything they, 
you know, sort of like, you know, enter into dialogue with on this topic from Fox News, from Newsmax, from, you know, right wing opinion editorialists. Like, so you might be counting on that to continue to insulate you. Uh, there, there were limits to that, though. And we, and we frankly, we saw them in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, basically every election since Trump's election in 2016, where you see Republican politicians who are trying to sort of hold the party line and, and hang on to that party banner in support of Donald Trump. You know, we see them losing in places they should really not be losing. And, they, you know, we see them losing in swing states. We see them losing statewide races in Kentucky, in Alabama, in Arizona, in New Mexico, like places where Republicans can and often are competitive. And obviously in 2020, we saw them lose the White House uh, and the Senate after losing the House in 2018. So and for all we talk about the fact that these were narrow elections and they were, the fact that, that all of those elections broke that way is something I think we don't appreciate enough. Now, that may or not may or may not make any difference to the average Republican member of Congress or the average Republican state legislator, because, again, they are still living in sort of a, a gerrymandered existence and a costed existence where what they're most afraid of is a primary challenge. And so to them to break away from, you know, sort of defending Donald Trump, to break away from the, uh, you know, the, the crowds of people that they have convinced, you know, believe that there is election fraud all over the place to now break away from that is probably going to seem more risky to them than, you know, than not doing so. This committee has subpoena power, correct? It does. Yes. So we could see some high profile people be put in uncomfortable positions. Uh, Do you think it's possible? We see former president Donald Trump because a lot of people want to know where he was, what he said and what he was doing while this was all going on. I, I am admittedly torn between two tendencies. The the part of my brain says that, you know, that there's no chance we're ever going to see Donald Trump testifying in front of a congressional committee for any reason, um, because sort of like answering compelled questions is not really his bailiwick. On the other hand, there is also the part of my brain that says, yes, but he is sort of a, a consummate attention seeker and self-promoter. So maybe he might actually want in much the same way that like Nixon gives the, the Frost Nixon interviews, right? Like maybe he won't be able to hold back. Um, I don't think so though, especially not with this committee. I think if you had Jordan and Baker and a couple of others or like a Stefanik on the committee and so to throw him some softball questions, so he'd get to answer questions the way he wanted to, you'd have a better chance of that. But with just, uh, I, what, I think it's 12 Democrats plus Kinzinger and, uh, and, and Cheney, there's no, he doesn't have any friends on that panel. So I, I think it's less likely that he shows up and testifies. Whether or not you can get um, Republicans like, like Kevin McCarthy to testify in front of it or not is, I think, kind of an open question because we have never had a, 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 a robust and clear mechanism by which congressional subpoenas are enforced. In other words, Congress has the power to issue subpoenas, and nominally they have the same power as, as subpoenas issued by, by a magistrate. But when you when you don't comply with a congressional subpoena, there are limited options Congress has because Congress is not an executive body. They rely on a U.S. attorney or the theoretically the sergeant at arms, I think, can actually go and arrest people and detain them. But like it hasn't happened in a long time. Um, so if, if to take the most obvious example, if Kevin McCarthy is subpoenaed to testify about his conversations with Donald Trump on the phone on January 6th, it's not entirely clear what he will do in response to that subpoena, nor what. Nancy Pelosi or the chair of the committee can do if he chooses to not respond to it. So 
we'll just have to see. I mean, it's it's all it's not all uncharted territory, but it is very murky territory with a lot of avenues that it can go down. The I'm pretty sure though the the Democratic leadership has made it clear that they are not interested though in filing lots of federal court cases to try and compel this testimony and dragging it out for 13 months. Uh, that they will either get the testimony or not, and that they're interested in more more abrupt, more obvious, more clear cut uh, ways of trying to get that done. To your point, not having this drag out 13 months, how long do you think we will be looking at this? As we were, as I just mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. we're the day after the first set of hearings. I do not believe there have been another set of hearing public hearings uh, released. Uh, so, how long are you thinking? Is this something you would expect to end by the end of the calendar year? Let's see. What month is it now? Okay, it's July. <laughs> um, possibly. Uh, and the reason I say, say, and I hate to equivocate on this, but I, I think a lot of it is going to be driven by what information is brought to light, because a, a key task of this commission is fact-finding and, and establishing timelines and relationships and establishing what happened when and what was said to whom. And it may well be that elements of this commission's work simply last longer. Um but I think so. I think it's more likely you'll see it in fits and starts over a period of maybe you know four months to probably not more than a year. Obviously, the Republicans are trying to push this as just a partisan investigation. That Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has her talking points now. Obviously, there are two Republicans on the committee, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. That does not change the talking points that they just believe these are. Republicans that are in cahoots with Nancy Pelosi and can't be taken seriously. Is there any hope that that can be broken through and this will be looked at with clear eyes with obviously not everyone, but the vast majority of people, you know, uh, across the spectrum? I think what you'll say, and by the way, to that point, I'm pretty sure McCarthy refers to them now as Pelosi Republicans, which is a very odd thing to refer to a Cheney as, but, um, because Liz Cheney is anything but a liberal. I mean, like, and, and the idea that she is somehow like, you know, you know, like I obvious, like that she's enthralled to Nancy Pelosi, a San Francisco liberal is just ridiculous on its face. However, it, it's, it's the card they have to play, right? That these are, that these are two Trump hating Republicans. These are two never Trumpers. They might as well be Democrats because in the sort of like, you know, right wing MAGA universe, to not be supported with Donald Trump makes you a liberal. Like this is the buzzsaw that, you know, that we saw, you know, Jeff Flake run into that we, that we've seen so many Republicans who, you know, I mean, that, that we see conservatives across the spectrum, not even people who are no longer Republicans, but like George Will is now apparently a liberal because he doesn't support Donald Trump. And that's where the trap lies for a lot of these conservatives and Republican politicians is that if they allow the litmus test of being a conservative and being a Republican to be whether or not you support Donald Trump, all that is going to do is cement the losses that you've suffered in, for example, the Philadelphia suburbs, where we saw, you know, for four years now, we've seen seats flipping blue that have it, that have literally never helped, been held by Democrats or haven't been held by Democrats since like the Civil War. And what that's going to do is sort of lock in those voters. Partisan re- or party realignment not really partisan realignment, but party realignment, as in when, when the block of voters that generally support a party changes, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen pretty quickly. And it follows some pretty defined steps in that there's usually some new issue or new, either a brand new issue or a new take on an issue that arises. One party sort of, you know, makes a pitch to a new block of voters and saying, hey, we're on your side on this. Come join us. 
they win the support of those voters. And then the, the step that sort of locks that in is then following through with some sort of significant policy change. And when we apply that, that realignment lens to sort of the Trump era and whether conventional run-of-the-mill, what they are sometimes called country club Republicans and suburban Republicans, whether or not they sort of stick with the Democratic elected leaders that they've been voting for or not is is probably going to come down to how well Democrats service this idea that that Trump and Trumpism are not acceptable. And so, you know, in the 1960s, it was civil rights. And the reason you saw like large, large blocks of voters that were staunch Republicans uh, in the African-American community switch from Republican to Democratic voters was basically because, you know, the I mean, sorry, just to back up real quickly. If you look at the party platforms of the Democratic and Republican parties in like 1960 on the issue of civil rights, you would find like they're kind of the same. They, they all make this head fake towards like a generic statement of, you know, equal treatment under the law and everything else. There wasn't a big there wasn't much daylight between them. But by 1964, that had substantially changed. And the Democratic Party it was making a play for this block of voters. And when you follow that up with passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that sort of perfects and completes that transition, that realignment. Something like the 1-6 Commission and sort of the, you know, the ongoing you know, de-Trumpification efforts that you know, Democrats make in, in the executive branch agencies and on the federal judiciary is probably the, the policy step that locks in those new Democratic voters who maybe have voted Republican all their lives. And, and, and will probably cause the defection of even more, because the problem Republicans face from a party block perspective is that American parties need to be the tents. And if they can't be, then they become too small to be competitive. And the threat that that raises is that you are now appealing to a smaller and smaller and smaller block of voters, and that would be bad enough. But the, the bigger problem within that is that to appeal to that shrinking block, you have to become more and more of a purist. You have this you know, Jacobin tendency where everything must be yes or no, and there's no room for any discussion or dissension or debate. And so that's where I think you're going to see sort of the value of the 1-6 Commission as a political tool. And all of, this, all of the strains of that will probably run in the same direction. I don't see that there's anything really to gain for Republicans in it, in their current orientation. If they had taken the attitude of this is an important question and we will participate as members of, you know, a, you know, a responsible government to find out what happened and, and it's going to expose things we don't like, but we're going to do it anyway. If they took that attitude, they would probably win back a lot of those voters, but it would probably cost them at the same time a bunch of their most consistent voters under the Trump era. So you can see the catch 22 they find themselves in. One of the interesting things about I didn't watch it wall to wall, but the parts of the hearing I watched was once you got past kind of the opening statements, I was amazed at how much of the quote unquote viral moments, the discussions, it was one of the first hearings in Congress. I can remember in a long time where most of the viral moments came from the actual people speaking and it wasn't some back and forth with a member who was putting forth either a complete red herring or obviously showboating for the cameras. It was really one of the first hearings that where the, the people in the hot seat were the ones uh, that produced the, the moments people are going to remember. Absolutely. And that I think speaks to your earlier question about like, will this break through into again, not that hard kernel of like the, the most extreme 20% you know, on the right. Now, I, I don't think anything would break through into that crowd, frankly. But to 
to to more what we might just consider sort of run of the mill habitual Republicans who maybe were on board with Trump because they like some of his policies or whatever. That's going to matter because one thing we know is that people do not like politicians and generally don't trust what they say. So when the most compelling moments from a hearing in front of Congress come from those that are testifying and come as explicitly and as as you know as as compellingly and as in your face as these statements did, I think that makes a big difference. And they're the kinds of statements that are not going to be forgotten in a week or a month. They they will be you know perennially useful as touchstones for what this commission unveiled. And that was the first day. And unquestionably, the committee managers probably, I think rightly, made the calculation that this would make for very, you know, gripping testimony that was seen as nonpartisan. So that's why they wanted it up front. But the fact that we got that out of one day of testimony, I think, tells you something about the potential for this commission to produce something of value, even if it's not as wide ranging as the proposed commission was. And I think, arguably, you can make a case for utter political malpractice for people like McCarthy and McConnell to bail on the original proposal for the commission, which would have given conservative voices as, you know, at least people in their establishment sort of like, you know, ecosystem would have given those voices a chance to provide some counterpoint or some context. The fact that they, that they threw that up and just said, nope, this is not a bipartisan commission, even though it absolutely was. The fact that they blew it up, even though their lead negotiators had signed off on it and sort of left them hanging, I think was, was a massive failure. And I think it was a, a, a great example of being sort of penny wise and pound foolish. I think they're going to come to regret that decision. Yeah, to your point, just so people are clear and to make sure they basically got what they wanted. You know, if that commission that had been negotiated, that would have been a a more traditional, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Republicans would have had to sign off on subpoenas. It would have been half half. I mean, it was basically, if I understand correctly, the Republicans said we want A, B, C and D. Democrats said, okay, you got it. Okay, but then the Republicans said, no, this is unfair. We're not going to do it. it it's kind of untenable. I, either because they did not expect Democrats to, I, I mean, I'm going to say call their bluff, but like it, it, <laughs> this, we've done this before, right? As a country, like in Congress, we know what these commissions tend to look like. And this took the form of what those commissions look like. And so I'm not really sure why, if this was a bluff, I think, I, I, I think they they bluffed at a very dumb hand uh, because they did. They got what they wanted. And I think that commission would have been much more effective at muddying the waters if that was the goal of McConnell and McCarthy than the current rendition is. And I think they are assigning way too much power to their claim that that this was this is not a bipartisan commission. Maybe they weren't expecting Cheney and Kinzinger to agree to serve on it. Maybe they were expecting more robust response from the public about how this is a partisan commission. I'm not sure. But yeah, right out of the gate, they got basically exactly what they want. They got equal representation on the committee in terms of who served on it and who got to nominate who served on it. They got approval for, you know, uh, that someone from their wing of the, that, that a majority of the commission would have to vote to approve any subpoenas, which would have, I think, extremely effectively curtailed the, the scope of the investigation. Um, and the fact that they blew that up was, and also, by the way, they make they make Nancy Pelosi, they make themselves look extremely crass and partisan by doing it. In other words, to the extent that there was partisanship involved in the sinking of the original proposed commission, it was pretty much all on the Republican side. The Democrats rolled over on a lot of things that, frankly, they did not have to do, because let's not forget, they could have simply started with this, you know, commission where they get, you know, eight seats to the Republicans five. And they could have just begun with that, but they didn't. They started by offering 
what I, what we would consider a truly bipartisan commission, and then had that rejected. So now they they give they give Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership all the cover they should want they could possibly want to hold not only this commission but any future commissions. There's nothing stopping the Senate from getting involved here at some point. There's nothing stopping a new uh, select committee from being formed based on information that's revealed during this commission this commission's hearings. And so you 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 prevent the kind of closure that would make this a relatively short-term talking point, if not a short-term issue. So give me a range of things, if you and I are talking a year from now, and let's just assume for the for this discussion that this committee has completed its work. Give me a range of outcomes that you think are reasonable of, of what we could see. You know, is this just something that once it's completed, the report is in the news cycle for 48 hours and then we forget it to, Oh my God, I can't believe this was found and proven and on tape. And this is going to change American politics forever. Where do you, what do you see? On the, on the sort of limited effects end, in other words, what's sort of the minimum I would expect to see? I think it's that, I think it's that you see the release of a, a much more explicit and telling report than you got out of the Mueller investigation, for example, which was if you stopped and read it an incredibly, wide-ranging and detailed and damning document, but nobody was going to read, nobody except me, was going to read, you know, 216 pages of this, right? I mean, I did, I read the first day, but not, like most people are going to do that. So I think you're going to end up with a report that is much more explicit and, and puts a much finer point on things than the very sort of like, you know, globally framed Mueller report. So I think at least you're going to end up with that. And it ends up being a talking point in many of the elections in 2022, uh, and probably the election, presidential election race in 2024, probably no matter who is running. Um, I think at the other end of that extreme, I think you see maybe the creation of a, you know, new standing or, or permanent select committee on political violence uh, in the House or Senate. I think you could see explicit uh, legislation adopted by the House and Senate directing the FBI to devote or to the, to create some new body within the you know federal uh Justice Justice Department uh, to look into issues of political violence and maybe white supremacy because undoubtedly there are going to be connections there. You may well see, uh, you know, I, I mean, if we're th- again, if we're thinking sort of like the most what what's sort of the most you know maximalist outcome, uh, you could see criminal prosecutions for in, inciting violence or inciting insurrection. You could see members of the House and Senate ejected. Uh, you could see people's careers that are derailed by this. I mean, like it's the 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 I'm not sure right, right way to phrase this, but the the downside sort of like potential, the, the contingent liability attached to this for, you know, a Republican who's trying to downplay it really cannot be overstated. Like the 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 the, the negatives get very, very bad. This is a little bit like talking about talking to like environmental activists, activists about climate change. It's like, well, what's the what's an extreme outcome here? And it's like, well, mass extinction. And I guess it's sort of the same thing here. We are talking about a polit- an act of political violence at the Capitol. And the the risk of anyone who sort of like soft pedals this or downplays it kind of can't be quantified because it, it could be up to and including, you know, criminal prosecution. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.